The following is a podcast about trail running. And feelings. Welcome to Trail Emotion. My name is Kelsey Hogan, and I'm here with my partner in running in life, Adam Fernell. When we met, Kelsey had already been running ultramarathons for three years, and I didn't know that they existed. I ran only on the road and often grudgingly for the purpose of my career in recreational sports. But it wasn't long before you were out on the trails, taking pictures, eating snacks, enjoying the time out in nature, and loving everything about running on trails for hours at a time. It might not have been quite that smooth, but after I decided to pace you at the Tahoe 200, a 200-mile race around Lake Tahoe, it wasn't long before I was careening downhill towards the trail running community. Now we both run ultramarathons, and trail running is never far from our minds. I like to say that ultra running has a way of reducing the space between me and my emotions. That's why trail emotion is about more than just running. It's about the emotions that we meet along the trail. Sometimes I'm surprised about the parts of me that I meet along the way. We're making this podcast because we want to explore the spaces between ultra running, ourselves, and our emotions. We're going to do it by talking with ultra runners and about ultra marathons but also by talking to people who don't think of themselves as runners at all. Because we believe that we're all on trails to somewhere, running ultras of our own, and that ultra running can teach us something about how to climb the mountains we're each facing in our own lives. But before we do that, we have another race to run and interviews to record. So while we get ready to launch episode one of Trail Emotion, we want to share something that gives you a taste of how we talk when we talk about running. Last summer, we both ran races at Quebec Megatrail, a trail running festival just outside of Beaupre, Quebec at Mont Saint-Anne, and took some time to interview each other about our experiences. We're about to head back to run the 100 miler at Quebec Megatrail, so we thought that it was time to get our experiences about the race last year out into the world. In this episode, you'll hear me interview Kelsey about her race at the 100 miler, and in the second episode, you'll hear Kelsey interview me about my experience in the 110 kilometer race. We hope that these episodes are useful for runners, crew members, and anyone who's curious about what it feels like to take on an ultramarathon. We're grateful to be able to run these races and hope that our experiences can offer something to you, even if you don't feel like running is in your future. Okay, so until we talk to you again, Enjoy our two-part series about last year's Quebec Mega Trail. Kelsey Hogan. Adam Fernell. Why are we here today? Well, I think we're here because we ran a long time in the woods and we're going to talk about it. Right, and it is true that we ran for a long time together in the woods. I ran for distinctly less amount of time and fewer kilometers than you did. That is a fact, correct? Yes. Yep. Yes, that's true. Right. So 160 kilometers for you, 80 out of a potential 110 kilometers for me. Yeah. These are the facts? Yes. Undisputed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so 160 kilometers, that translates into American how? 
And that's 100 miles. So we're here. We're going to talk a little bit about your race. And we wanted to do this because we wanted to share. There's a lot, a lot to think about before, during, after an ultra. And uh, we've probably already done about 30 podcasts in the last three days as we've debriefed it. Absolutely. And we're still only a few days after, so things are still a little fresh. Also, my brain is still a little fuzzy because I'm still recovering. So it's a good time to ask some questions and get some stories. Perfect time to ask some questions and get some stories. So, okay, it's not always going to be like this, but today I'm asking the questions. You're answering the questions. I suppose you could ask some questions back, but we're going to try and curtail your instinct to talk about anybody but yourself. I have lots of questions for you too, but we can save them for later. Okay, deal. So we've been talking about this race what was this race? This was the Quebec Mega Trail. This was the second year that they were hosting the 100 mile event at the race. Um, they have a whole bunch of other distances all the way from the 100 mile, 110 kilometer down to a kids one kilometer race and lots of things in between. Uh, and this was, I guess, the 10th anniversary. And so it was the Quebec Mega Trail Legendaire. Okay, so why run Quebec Mega Trail this year? Well, I haven't run 100 mile for a couple of years now because of COVID-19. The pandemic canceled a few different races and some of our plans in the last couple of years. Um, Just before that, we had both actually been there not long after we met. And I had signed up to run the 110 kilometer in 2019 uh, as part of my training for the Tahoe 200 mile later that year. Uh, and so we went there. It was your first time ever going to an ultra and I was excited to bring you along as my crew. Uh, and just a few days, like 10 days before that, I had raced the Gaspesia 100 mile, um, back in 2019. So I started that race on pretty tired legs and I DNF'd. I did not finish at kilometer 80. I decided to stop because I had uh, been dealing with some ankle things and a few other things going on and made the choice to stop my race there because I wanted to feel fresh and not injured for my training for the Tahoe 200 that year. But uh, I had unfinished business. So I wanted to come back this year and they had introduced the 100 mile event and I was ready to go for it. Okay, so unfinished business. That's a thing that people say. Is it true? Did you actually feel like you had unfinished business? Yeah, yeah. I think I remember staying like making that decision at the base of Mont St. Anne and looking up at the mountain and thinking like, oh, it's just... I know I could do it. I know I want to do it. I know there's like so much more trail up there uh, and I didn't get to see it on that race. And so this year uh, it was really cool. Every point after that station that I had dropped at uh, was like new territory for me. And so it felt it felt sort of uh, poetic and it felt important to go back there. And um, once I crossed that aid station, I was like, okay, there's no way nothing's stopping me now. I'm getting there. Okay, so if I'm to understand you right, the unfinished business was to see a bunch of beautiful trail. Yeah, lots of nice views. This time I got to see that section too in the daytime. So I was up at the top of the mountain looking down at all of the hills that we just climbed and at the base of the resort. And uh, yeah, lots of nice trails, lots of nice hills. Many, 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 many hills on this run, but some beautiful views and beautiful trail. 
And that's it. And lots of really great people involved. There was some really cool, really cool aid station volunteers along the way. Um, lots of sights and sounds along the way. Cool, cool. And like, <laughs> you didn't want to come back and try and win the race, run it faster, uh, or anything like that? Yeah. I'm just curious. I'm not saying that that's the reason. I'm just curious to know if that's part mm. of what unfinished business meant to you. Well, I think that that was actually a newer thing. That probably wasn't related to the unfinished business. I think having seen the 100-mile distance introduced last year, um, I had some friends that ran it. Tim McDonough ran it last year and uh, had a really awesome race and did a cool recap of that, actually, that we listened to as prep for this. Um, and last year there was the first female finisher, first course record, you know, in the first edition of the race and Audrey set that last year and I was looking at the time and we watched uh, their documentary actually, they made a film about it and was feeling sort of like that would be a cool goal to go back there and see if I could beat that time and, and maybe set a course record maybe make the podium. I, I felt like I had it in me, but I also knew that this year there were some pretty strong women back on the course. And, uh, that was kind of exciting. So I have to ask you, I, I know that talking about the competitive side of ultra running is not something you do very often. And I'm just curious to know, like when you talk about it and when you're put in a position to have to talk about, say, beating a course record or setting those really high goals, how does it feel? No, it feels funny. <laughs> I think, uh, um, I guess there, there's something exciting about it too. I think uh, it's really cool seeing that the women's participation in the sport is growing and it's getting faster. And um, a lot of times when I'm starting or I'm, I've been running these races in the past, it's been like me and a bunch of guys up there and I'm chasing their times. And uh, it's kind of cool to be up there racing other women and hopefully like we're out there pushing each other and there's more people that look at my time and think next year that they'd like to be able to get out and beat that. The competitive part is sort of strange to talk about. I often feel more competitive with myself and like thinking I want to go out there and I want to have a fast time for myself. I want to try and run as much as I can. Um, and then I think the like exciting part of that competitiveness is when we're out there pushing each other and getting faster together. Let's talk a little bit about mega trail. How did you train for it? How did I train for it? Well, I would say this year, actually, uh, in the past, I've mostly just trained by getting out the door as much as possible and spending lots of time on trails and picking uh, different loops and trails around where I live that I'm excited to explore. So um, we've got some some pretty great trails around here in Halifax that it's fun just to pick them and plan to go out and have no set pace or time and, and explore. So that was still part of my training this year. I think something a little bit newer this year, um, I had jumped in across country on the varsity team at Dalhousie this fall and had uh, worked a lot on speed and, and a lot of different kinds of workouts for training for an eight kilometer race on the cross country team and learned a little bit about speed and about um, sort of building strength by running up hills and and doing the different kinds of workouts that we might include to build that speed over time. And so we built that a little bit into our training for this and tried to sort of structure some of those days um, with the speed and the endurance and the strength on the hills, and then also making sure I got lots of rest. So I think the easy running and recovery was a big piece of it. 
Yeah. And I think the other piece of training too is getting used to the gear and getting used to the kind of food that I'd be excited to eat. So anything that I thought I was going to bring with me for the race, trying those in advance and trying them, uh, yeah, on the trail when we were running. And it's kind of all a bit of an experiment when you're going. You talk a little bit about the speed work that you did during the cross country season. And I'm interested in knowing how you think that paid off for you during the race. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I found another gear in my legs this year for cross country season. I, uh, didn't know that I could run below four minute kilometers, I think before this year. And so to run an 8k in the fall, um, in sub four minute kilometers the whole time, it was like, Oh, Oh, I can run fast. And I know what that feels like. And I know that that like level of effort doesn't mean that I'm dying, even though my body thinks that I'm dying. And so it's like a game between your mind and your body to say, this feels really hard um, and that's okay. And that's maybe what you want to get to. So I was playing with that a little bit more this year in um, some of the training runs that we did, like the 50K that we did at Rockwood uh, and during this race, like really letting myself go kind of at that effort level at places in the race where it was runnable. And so when you're involved in a hundred mile race and you're playing with running beyond the point of comfort, running towards empty, running towards a place where you feel like you might die, how is that different than doing that in an eight kilometer race? I think that you maybe you get there much earlier in the race um, you know, 8K into a 100-mile race feels like you're just getting going. And so getting to that point earlier, feeling like I'm um, I'm maybe running on empty for a lot longer, and that's okay. It, it like, is just a lot more time with that feeling. And so you really get to know it and get to know, yeah, what it feels like to push, even though you feel like you need to stop at every moment and I had a lot of conversations with my legs and my feet and my toes and say like thanking them for continuing to move because I wanted to. And, you know, we were all on this mission together to just keep moving forward and to keep moving forward at as fast a pace as I was possible. And uh, usually it's faster than what I think is possible and what my body would like to tell me is possible. You're using this word we to talk about that. You're talking about you and your body, you and your mind. And how do you train yourself to take that kind of approach? And what does that approach kind of mean? I'm interested in, I guess, the mental side of how you prepared for this race and then how you sort of put it into play when you uh, started the 100 miler. I think that that mental piece is a lot of the training and you don't really ever run 100 miles as preparation for running 100 miles. And so you have to find other ways to get to that level of exhaustion and tiredness. And so finding it in like hill repeats and intervals and then like back to back long runs was a chance to run on really tired legs and work together with my mind and my body to continue to move during that. And yeah, I think the mental side of it is so fun. I think it's really interesting. I think there's like a whole deep dive down a rabbit hole we could do on that. I've been soaking up Addie Bracey's mental training for ultra runners book and just really enjoying some of the things that she's put into words about the skills that you can use to persevere through some of these really tough things. And just like, just like training physically, you can train your brain. And I think those are some of the strategies that I used just a little bit and was playing with this time around. 
Okay, so maybe give me a couple examples when you're out training. What are a couple of things, two or three things that you did to work your mind? The, the kind of uh, setting goals for each training run and setting goals while I was running um, that broke it up into smaller pieces so that I was able to actually wrap my head around it rather than um, like in the in a race, I'm not thinking about running 100 miles. I'm thinking about running to the next aid station. So same thing in a training run, I'm thinking about like running to that next tree rather than running the whole loop. And so breaking it up into those smaller pieces is helpful. I, I also am like doing a lot of visualization. So there's for me when I'm in the training run, I'm often remembering parts of a race that I've had that are really, really like I felt strong. I felt fast. I felt motivated. There's like a very vivid memory of I have of us coming down when you paced me in Tahoe and like coming down that last section of mountain, maybe like 10K. And I knew my parents were there. I knew that we were going to finish. It was like all of a sudden we were just running. And after 200 miles, it didn't feel like I would be able to run again. And we were we were going at a pretty fast pace. And so I felt really strong in that moment. And that's something that like when I'm training and when I'm feeling like I want to try and push the speed and I'm on tired legs, I remember that feeling and I try and channel that in my body when I'm running. So that's a couple of examples. Very cool. Before I move on a little bit further, I want to circle back to something that you said about that level of, I think you said, exhaustion of suffering of, I don't think you used the word pain actually, but I think you did say suffering and exhaustion. And you said that with a smile on your face for the most part. You said once to me, well, you tried to define the word fun. <laughs> yes. And the word fun involved some words that I'm not used to the word fun being related to. And I'm wondering if you could tell us perhaps how suffering and exhaustion might be fun. <laughs> I don't remember exactly what I said to you in that definition, but I know you reference it now pretty often. And I think that like the idea of type two fun resonates with a lot of people that it's the kind of fun that is like, wow, I get to experience this really wild thing. And like my body is so full of sensation right now. And this is weird and wacky and cool. And like, this is what I want to do because I'm choosing to do it. And so it's, it's almost like for me, I think a reminder that it's fun because, uh, you can, you can focus on maybe all of the things that are hard about it. And I don't, I don't actually think of the word suffering very often. I think it's like, um, that's one way to describe it. Or you can use the word fun. And uh, in that moment, <laughs> it's sort of a choice. Do you think about it as type two fun? Or do you think about it as type one fun? I think of it as fun. I think of it as like, woo, I get to run up and down the trails. I get to be out here and my my feet are feeling kind of funny and my body feels funny. And oh my goodness, I'm probably seeing creatures on the trail, like whether they're real or not. Uh, and that's that's all pretty cool uh, that I get to choose to do that and to experience that. And um, I guess the other thing too, is that I know that it's coming. And so I kind of want to get there and I want to have that experience because um, it's kind of, it's one of the parts of running these races. that's pretty unique. I think. We were listening to a podcast a little while ago with a Courtney DeWalter and she talks about chiseling out her pain cave and making it bigger 
And as I'm listening to you talk about the things that are fun and the things that you find within your fun cave or your your um, suffering cave, it makes me think that you've chiseled out a fairly large space for a great number of things to fit inside that area while you're running. There's no question there. It's just something I'm thinking about. <laughs> There's a lot of mind stuff in there, probably. There's a lot of things that maybe are learned over a lot of time. I think I, I owe a lot of credit to my parents for um, always asking or like showing us how to focus on the positive in any situation. It's like, you know, if I'm running and my feet are hurting, I'm aware that my feet are hurting, but I'm not going to think about that. I'm going to think about like how cool it is that my feet are carrying me over this trail, despite the feelings that they have and the sensations that they have right now. And to nail that, you're not ignoring that your feet are hurting. You're just saying right now, it's not helping me to achieve the goal that I have. Yeah. I take note. There's nothing serious going on. I don't need to actually change anything I'm doing. It's pretty normal for them to be hurting. And so I'm going to say thank you for letting me know that you're feeling some feelings at feet. But right now I'm going to focus on continuing to move forward. Good old feet. Good old feet. All right. Mega trail. Mm -hmm. Let's get down to some logistics. How did you get there? Well, this one, it was kind of an epic journey, I think, of logistics and coordination to get there. Um, usually we'd probably go up a few days early, but in this case, we were juggling some travel and some work schedules to get there with the two of us, meet up with my parents along the way who drove all the way from Newfoundland in their camper van, Ruby, and our fantastic crew support vehicle. And then also to meet up with your dad and your sister who were coming from London. So it was this like epic series of things to get us all to the base of Mont Saint Anne on Friday morning, uh, where we were packing and repacking and getting our gear sorted. And yeah, we arrived there with great timing. I felt really rested from our sleep in the tent the night before because we camped en route, uh, which is one of my favorite things. I love sleeping in a tent. I usually feel pretty well rested, so I'd choose it before almost any race. Yeah, and then then we made it to Mont Saint Anne Friday morning. Nice. So we're at Mont Saint Anne. We're in the parking lot. We've got the van doors open. We're sitting on the grass. There's like various paraphernalia everywhere. There's a wonderful Newfoundland fellow, your father, cutting watermelon on a cutting board. There's all sorts of stuff going on. What else are you thinking about other than the logistics at that moment? Uh, I'm thinking about getting you ready for your race because that's one thing that felt very strange is that I wouldn't get to see your start and I wouldn't know where you were during the race. Um, I'm thinking about getting your dad ready to pace you when he arrives. I'm thinking about communicating with my parents, what I think I might need at various points and really just mostly guessing because you have no idea what you're going to want later in the race, but giving them notes on what I thought I'd need at various aid stations uh, checking my watch to see what time, you know, how much time I have left before we need to leave to get to the start line, which was actually 45 minutes away from uh, the base of Mont Saint Anne. Um, and also just looking up at the mountain. We were at the base of the mountain that I knew I was going to climb at 100K and oh boy, it looked steep. <laughs> and it was. So that's a lot of things that aren't really about running your race. Mm hmm. I asked you. How are you feeling? And I think you said focused. 
Mm-hmm. How the hell were you focused amid all of that? <laughs> I don't know. I think I I knew what I needed to do. And I had been thinking in the days leading up to it. All of that list of various things was on my brain and on my on my notepad of like, I knew that those were all things that I needed to check off my list to be able to start the race. And so it wasn't like a scattered frenetic energy. It was really, it did, I felt very focused. My mom kept asking if I was excited and I was sort of like containing my excitement a little bit because I knew I was excited and I wanted to hold on to that so I, I could sort of let it go once I started racing. And I was really, really feeling pretty calm actually and very focused, like you said. How do you hold on to excitement? Acknowledge it. I think I could feel it um, and I could feel it bubbling like in my belly and in my chest and I uh, I knew it was there and so I I was looking forward to meeting it fully once I started and maybe just saying like thanks for being with me I'm we'll see you soon okay let's talk about the race okay you get to the start line in your parents van named Ruby what do you do just before the race begins? We pulled up uh, maybe an hour ahead of the shuttle that was coming with the other racers from the start. So it was kind of nice to get there a little early. I wasn't sure how much time I would have uh, when I arrived to do the check-in, get my race bib, do a medical check, uh, and then sort out my drop bags and drop them off to the start. It seemed like a fair few things in my head to organize within just an hour. Turns out it took very little time at all. It was pretty quick. Um, and actually, when we came up to the medical check, so they did a weigh-in at the very beginning. They took my blood pressure. Uh, and my mom came with me. And the lovely volunteer who was doing the medical check looked over at my mom and she said, are you stressed for your daughter at all? And my mom, to her credit, was really good. She said, huh, no, I I really, I'm not. I'm, I know she's going to do great. I'm excited. <laughs> and, and so uh, it was kind of fun to realize that she was there too. Like she had seen this before. This wasn't something at this point that's really scary for them. I think she said, actually, like there are things that I know are sort of scary about it or could be risky, but I just don't really think too much about them because I know she's ready. Um, and that was nice. That was nice to hear. So yeah, I did that check-in process uh, put the things in my drop bags that I had planned, put the things in my crew bag that I was going to leave with mom and dad, ate some nice salted potatoes and wraps and banana muffins. And, uh, what else? I had a nice oatmeal raisin cookie that your sister made. So I was, I was just snacking in that two hours sort of leading up to the race. Uh, and then I, all of a sudden you appeared you came out of nowhere. I wasn't sure if you were going to be at the start. So it was pretty cool to see uh, you and your sister and your dad show up and get to give you a hug just before we got going. Um, I chatted a little bit with other racers before this, but mostly was just getting ready to go and taped up my feet, lubed up with my trail toes so that I wouldn't chafe too much, uh, laced up my shoes and was ready to go. And then They were making announcements that were sort of hard to hear from the van, but all of a sudden there was a rush of people that went to the start line. And so it was like, okay, it's go time. And I didn't realize this, but I guess it was a little bit earlier than they had planned. Um, So that was why it maybe seemed a bit like more of a rush than than it had. I I think it it would have been usually. Uh, And when we lined up, it was just wild. It like started to downpour. 
and there was a clap of thunder and we like were there standing in the start corral just listening to them and they'd started this like smoke going there was music the announcer was really like pumping everyone up uh, I was chatting with some other racers around me Krista Kirstead from New Brunswick was there or from Halifax who I know from racing in New Brunswick uh, and lots of other folks it was just this like building building excitement that uh, was ready to release and then they said go go, 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 go. And we took off and the rain cleared and there was a double rainbow as we started running along that beach. Uh, and it was this like really beautiful, flat, runnable stuff. I probably took off faster than I usually would, but it was pretty exciting and it was really, really quite fun to be up there. And um, that first section just all the way until we hit the trail was pretty runnable and pretty flat. And yeah, we had this amazing double rainbow the whole way. So a pretty epic start. What do you remember from that first section? I remember feeling strong and feeling like, woo, we're here now. We're, we're going. This is exciting. Once we started, started off a little bit, probably just a few kilometers in, I found that my, my pace was starting to match a couple of other guys. So, you know, I said, hey, how's it going? Like, this is pretty fun, isn't it? Look at that double rainbow. And I uh, asked them their names. So I was running with Bastion and Robin at that point in time, who both ended up uh, doing amazing. They both made the top five and just like were strong and focused at the beginning of the race. And I'm sure all the way through to the end, we shared a few kilometers, chatted away at the beginning, which is pretty fun. I don't often actually run with people that much during the races. Um, and so it was neat to just chat away as we were going. And I kept waiting sort of like, you know, who's going to pull off first. And it just kind of naturally happened when we hit a hill and we said, you know, have a great course, but that started the race off on a really nice point. So then you run through that first section, you are carrying two liters of water on your back. Uh, you've got snacks in your vest and you run all the way to the first aid station. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, it started at 8 PM this race. So it was just dusk as we started and, uh, it was really nice cause we could see a lot of that, that view and pretty much maybe 40 minutes in, as soon as we were in on the trail, it started to get pretty dark. And so the headlamp came out and, uh, we were heading towards that first aid station. There was like a, an actual water drop partway through that they added this year that, um, I think in the past some racers, had trouble having enough water to that first aid station. I carry usually double what a lot of people do. I carry two liters rather than one. Um, and I just like to have that as a backup. And it's kind of nice because I could breeze through that first water drop too. And I didn't know if I was going to see my parents at that first aid station. I'd heard the parking might be a little bit tricky. And so I, as I was coming into it, was thinking about what I needed, what I would do. And all of a sudden they were like right at the beginning of it. I, I, I often cheer when I see the aid station. I think people like whoop and cheer when they see the runners. And I tend to whoop and cheer when I see the volunteers and the people there. And so as soon as I whooped and came into the, in at the dark at that point in time, I could hear my dad go, whoo, Kelsey, there she is. And they, they had a little table set up with my snacks and I kind of flew right past it actually, because I was going right for the water. That's what I knew I needed to refill at that time. And they came along and had some handfuls of my own snacks that I was going to refill. I grabbed some salted potatoes, refilled my water and was off on my way. 
So that reminds me of a tip that you gave me in my pre-race prep, which was to visualize what my aid station process would be before I arrived at every aid station and actually do that as I prepared for my race and have a bit of a plan going into the race so that I didn't have to do that mental work. It sounds like you had that plan well sorted away before you started the race. Is that true? Every time I'm approaching an aid station, I sort of take stock of my pockets. Like, what have I just eaten? What sort of things do I want to replenish from my own bag? What do I think I might want to grab at the aid station? Because I try and usually eat something from the table that's real food when I get there. Uh, And I always check my water to see if I'm going to need to refill. And I have sort of my plan for when I'm going into it when I'm not going to see my crew and then the bonus of when I have my crew there, usually, you know, my dad is there to refill my water and add my electrolytes to it. And my mom is there to replenish my pockets and make sure I have anything that I need. So it was it's a really nice bonus to have them as crew and just such a treat to know that I'm going to see them along the way. Like that extra boost of running to know that, ah, oh, gosh, I'm only a few kilometers away from seeing my parents and giving them a hug and getting them to cheer me on through the next section and I usually get them to to tell me um how many kilometers to the next aid station so I tend to break up my race aid station by aid station so that first aid station is a halt de l'arche it's at 19.6 kilometers you've run almost 20k at this point your next aid station is going to come at you in 20 kilometers there's a water drop in between that so what's that section like Yeah. So this was all pretty dark and at night now, and I was feeling pretty strong. I was really pleased that I was eating sort of exactly what I'd planned and how often I'd planned. At this point, even though you're running at night, you're running on fresh legs, which is sort of nice for a nighttime section. Often you're running quite tired when races start in the morning and you're running far into the night the next day. So I felt pretty good, actually. And if I remember correctly, a lot of this section was a really nice runnable down. I think just I love letting loose on the downs and so it was pretty cool on this nice long downhill stretch of road that I just decided to like let go I think I'd, I'd just been passed by two guys on a bit of an up and had let pulled aside to sort of let them cross and then I caught up to them before the down and sort of went okay I'm just gonna I'm on your left I'm gonna keep going <laughs> and it was cool and I looked at my watch I think I actually had some like four minute 30 second kilometers on those sections that just, uh, it felt pretty fast. How do you run those downs in the dark fast without the fear of, well, wiping out? I I suppose there's always a bit of risk of wiping out, but I tend to, especially early in the race when I'm on fresh legs, just let go a little bit and trust that that quick turnover is part of what's going to help me from wiping out. Like if I'm catching myself too much every step then I'm breaking and I actually find it harder on my knees so at that point like if I'm able to open up my stride and let that quick turnover go I find um, those fast steps help me to keep going a little bit more so you get through that section and you find your way at massive I think I I blew through that one pretty quickly too I just yeah I, I filled up my water I was ready to keep going I knew I needed to check that my headlamp batteries were there but I didn't need to replace it My headlamp was actually like the strap was a little off during this race and I hadn't checked that beforehand. So I had to sort of tuck it in and I got them to fix it at a later aid station. But I didn't really think of it when I passed through that one and it was still broken at that time. Did you eat anything there? 
I had watermelon at almost all of the aid stations, like handfuls and handfuls of watermelon. I think I probably grabbed a couple of rice balls from that one too. I did. I pocketed some rice balls at that one. And I have to say, once I was back on the trail and I pulled them out of my pocket and I had just sticky rice balls going like all through my pockets and everywhere, it wasn't as appealing as it had been when I was looking at it at the nice aid station table. So that's a no to sticky rice ball pockets for anybody keeping score at home. And through those next two two aid stations, then uh, I, I wasn't going to see my parents until morning. So I I had given them sort of a plan of what I wanted uh, when I saw them at St. Tite de Cap, uh, which was the next one. And I, I told them to have a bit of a nice snooze. I was hoping that they could sleep a bit because it's a, it's a bit of an ultra for them to be up all night, too. And my original plan when I had invited them was that I wouldn't see them over the night at all because I wanted them to be able to rest. And they said, no, no, we're going to we're going to follow you around. Uh, And it ended up being awesome to see them at those first couple overnight. In those next couple, they I I just I have a really vivid memory of uh, running through some of the trails at night and realizing that, like, I felt so loopy. And I was starting to feel really tired and I was tripping and I was like literally, (laughs) yeah, I was a little tired, but literally, (laughs) and I was tripping over roots and rocks. And I have to say that the trail was really well marked in this race. Um, but at night the flagging tape, uh, when it wasn't a turn, like just when it was, you were still on a trail and they were marking that you were still on the right trail, um, wasn't reflective and so that was hard to see and your mind starts to play tricks on you like am I still on the right trail and uh, to see other flags up ahead was really nice and I was mostly by myself for these sections and I did make a couple of wrong turns I added a couple of kilometers but my headlamp was actually fading and when I realized that it had faded that was like a big moment of oh I can replace the batteries and it'll be brighter and I won't trip as much so like in hindsight, replace your batteries sooner, Kelsey. That was it. That was a pretty good tip at, at that point in time. I also like as it was starting to get to be sunrise in this section, it was just so cool. I could hear the birds before the sun started to come up and they were singing and I didn't recognize the bird calls. I like to know the kinds of birds that I'm listening to. And in this case, I was just really enjoying their songs, but Yeah, the sun was rising and the birds were coming up and it was like, oh, we've made it to the first morning. It was lovely. Sounds very nice. Somewhere along there too, like before I think Cap Gruben, uh, there is a section of trail that I ran into some porcupines. It was just after sunrise. Ouch! Yeah, (laughs) it could have been ouch. They were just kind of hunkered down and then right in front of me on the trail and they wouldn't leave. I, uh you know, sort of made eye contact with him. And one of them looked back at me. There were two very, like, just sort of back to back that I shared a few kilometers, like a few meters with probably a few hundred meters. The porcupine was just hanging out and I was running towards it and it wasn't moving. And so I started clapping at it and I was thinking it would get off the trail, but it didn't. It just started moving along the trail at a nice hunkering, slow pace. And I was faster than the porcupine at that point in time, but I couldn't pass it and I couldn't go to it. And so we shared some nice, nice little steps together before you finally booted it off the trail and I could keep going. And we're sure that this was a real porcupine. <laughs> yeah. I'm 
100% sure there were two real porcupines, not fake, not hallucinations. I'm certain they were real. Okay. <laughs> no, I believe you. Yeah. Just have to check. Yep. Um, those two aid stations, Cap de Salou and Cap Griban, those are in the woods, kind of. What were the volunteers like there? Oh, kudos to the volunteers, like hanging out in the middle of the woods for this race with like the most energy and enthusiasm. They were so excited. And like whenever I came into aid stations, too, I think there was an extra burst of excitement. A lot of people would go, oh, Premier Femme, Premier Femme. And that means first woman. Um, so people were excited to tell me that I was the first woman and I was excited to sort of know that, I guess. And they were just ready to help with whatever I needed. And it was great. I like this. My French is only sort of, I would say, mediocre. But at that point in time, I had no filter. And so I was really trying to speak French to everyone. And they were very willing to speak French back to me. And then I realized I couldn't understand them very well when they spoke it really fast. And so it was nice that they took my attempt at speaking French and reflected it back. But then I would say, oh, sorry, English. <laughs> and um, yeah, they were just incredible. And I think a few of them were camped out in those places in the forest all night. And so the volunteers at this race really made the experience something else. St. Tita Cap, the next sort of big aid station, it's at the 80 kilometer mark of the race. You see your parents there. What was that one like? Yeah, this one I remembered really clearly from the last time I did it. You sort of come in out on a main road and you see, I guess it's like a school before you actually get to it. So I could see it. I could hear the people at the aid station uh, and you actually duck down and cross a little culvert. So I was feeling pretty good. I was uh, I felt sort of refreshed when I stepped into the stream and uh, my feet really appreciated the cold water. I followed along the side. I actually managed to like trip and hit myself, my shin off of a rock at that point, which was sort of annoying because I was just a few hundred meters from the aid station, but picked it up, kept going, saw my parents there. Uh, at this aid station too, I actually had to do another medical check-in. And so they weighed me. They took my blood pressure. The awesome volunteer that I'd seen at the start told me that my blood pressure was more chill than it had been at the start, whatever that means. And she said, you're actually just, you're even more better, more perfect blood pressure. Ooh. And uh, I think I, I was like three pounds heavier somehow, maybe the water in my shoes. <laughs> and while I was doing that, my mom had taken my vest and they were doing a gear check to make sure that I had all of the mandatory gear and, um, she couldn't figure out where everything was in my pack. So I was sort of doing this weigh in and the blood pressure and telling them where to find things in my pack at the same time. And then I uh, walked up to the aid station, grabbed three grilled cheeses and a veggie wrap and a bunch of chips and a bunch of watermelon, went around to the corner where my parents had set up. Uh, they had two chairs, one for me to sit in and one for me to put my feet up in. And then I had an aid station volunteer there actually come and follow me and ask if there was anything else that I wanted. So she came and brought a couple more grilled cheeses that I pocketed. Yeah, they were awesome. They, they wanted to know if I had any medical needs or anything at that point. Um, they asked how I was peeing at that point too. Um, I was peeing pretty regularly, which I usually do probably every 30 to 60 minutes. I drink lots of water and it just comes right on out. So that was really nice that I could answer that it was clear and all good. I, I had a nice refill of snacks and, and food and good energy. Uh, saw one of my friends, uh, Drew, who was running uh, and a little bit further back from me, his his girlfriend Emily was there. So she came and said a quick hello. She'd been chatting with my parents a little bit. 
and told me that Drew was doing good and, and still going strong. So that was nice to hear. I was getting updates on you during this too. Every time I saw my parents, I wanted to know how you were doing. And they said that you were using lots of good mental skills at that point. So that was nice to know. I had thought about changing my shoes and socks here because I knew that I would have crossed a stream or creek at that point, but I decided not to. My shoes are feeling great. My socks are wet, but it didn't really matter. And so kept on going. So you come out of St. Tite de Cap, and I can now talk about this a little bit. You yeah. come out of that, you turn left and you start going up sort of along like a residential road out towards a highway. And that section, you know, other than the fact that it's uphill for that little bit until you get to the highway is pretty flat. And then it, yeah. it starts to be pretty downhill and head into the river valley towards the Mestashibo aid station. How are you feeling at that point? What do you remember about that section of trail? Yeah. So my, my dad had clued in, I guess he'd been watching the times that people were doing this next section in. And when I was leaving uh, St. Tite de Cap, he said, you know, people are doing this next section fast. It's going to be fast. And so I said, okay, that's, that's great. Um, and I actually, as I was going up that road that you mentioned, there was an old guy, old man, I guess, who lived in the area wearing a trucker hat and his jeans. And he was just out for a little walk and I passed him going up the hill. And so I felt pretty fast. I remember that just like going down a really nice runnable section that was full of wildflowers, like this beautiful field as you're heading towards the river that was just like so colorful and so warm. It was getting sort of hot at this point, um, but it wasn't unbearable. And yeah, it was it was really smooth. Lots of nice runnable stuff along the road there. Um, I was practicing that feeling of running fast uh, and running on empty, but running faster than I usually would during a hundred miler. And it felt pretty cool. And so I, I think I, I flew through that section and I knew that uh, just before the next aid station too, we were going to get to do the river crossing. And I was pretty excited about that. There's a sort of steep descent that they had warned us about just down into that river. Um, that I can confirm <laughs> very, very steep. So I actually took out my poles there so I could uh, stabilize myself. I'd been running with them on my pack the whole time just to stabilize myself down that section and pulled up. And I guess I was the only runner there and all of the volunteers, they had two sort of big pontoon boats on pulley systems, uh, a bunch of volunteers on one side and a bunch on the other. The, they were really efficient. Like I, I was there, they were asked me how I was doing. I said I was having a great time. Uh, they put a life jacket over my vest, popped me into the boat, pulled, pulled me across, and I thought, oh, it'd be great to go for a swim right now. Um, I just kind of got to kick back and relax, and they helped me up on the other side, and I was off to the Mestashibo aid station. All right, so next, you're running the section from Mestashibo to Mont St. Anne. What is that section like? It's pretty wild. Actually, when I'd, I got out of the boats, the uh, people there were asking me, like, oh, have you done this course before? Like, do you know what you're in for? And I actually ran it last time I I'd, I'd attempted the race. And so I knew it was coming and they said, oh yeah, Mestashibo. Like it's kind of this wild section that is rocky and bouldery and totally not runnable for a lot of parts. You're kind of like heaving yourself up boulders and lowering yourself down. And um, yeah, it's it follows this the river or creek alongside of it and it's just stunning. And last time I did it, I was, uh, you know, dealing with some ankle pain and it was getting to be darker and it was pretty rainy. And this time it was like perfect, like sunshine and my legs were feeling great and my spirits were high. And so I was just, I was having fun. 
And yeah, my poles here were pretty helpful. I hadn't been certain whether I would use them or whether I would need them on this course. And my goodness, a lot of climbing, a lot of stabilization. Poles are a game changer for this one. The answer to do you bring your poles to Quebec Mega Trail is... Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes is the answer. Um, in that section, there is a beautiful waterfall not too far <laughs> from the base of Mont Saint-Anne. What do you have to do at the base of that waterfall? What do you have to do? You have to look up at right. all of the stairs. And also, I guess like the other fun thing about this section, because there's so much climbing on it that you're looking up and down and the waterfall um, at this point, I was starting to run up on some of the people who were, I guess, finishing the 50K and the 80. And so most of the race I'd been mostly by myself, occasionally seeing another 100 mile runner, or I guess maybe a 110 kilometer runner. But at this, I was starting to see these other people who were, I guess, finishing close to the cutoffs, but having a great time. There was a couple of women who, as I was going up those stairs that you mentioned, that you're looking up and you're like, oh my God, I have to climb these right now. There were some some women on that that had been doing that race who sort of pulled aside, stopped and cheered me on as I went up. And that was really cool. It was it was a nice burst on the, the climb. I was not feeling fast. I was not moving very fast, but I was trying my best to continue to move upwards and forwards. And uh, yeah, coming in from there, I I was close to seeing the base of Mont Saint-Anne again. So this was, you know, for me, kind of a mirror to the last time I was running it. I felt pretty excited that I was coming in feeling so strong and that the rest of the course after this was going to be all new for me. So in that section, you come down on some fairly runnable stuff and then you climb a bit back up and then you pop back out and you come into the base of Mont Saint Anne and you come into a pretty big festival environment. Oh. There's like a big tent and yeah. that's at kilometer 104 for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, kilometer 104 and also it, it feels wild because there's still 60 kilometers left at that point. It kind of, it felt like I was crossing through to like the the end of my race, like the finish was in sight, but I still had 60K left to go. But yeah, coming into that atmosphere was awesome. Big, big kudos to the race organizers. That like event, the festival event feel of the race was wild. Um, you could hear all of the music blasting and there was all sorts of announcements. Like that aid station is just above the main finish, start finish area. And they had all sorts of entertainment and and stuff going on all day for everyone who was hanging out there. So it felt pretty cool. Yeah. And I got to see my parents there and I, I came in, I decided I would change my shoes and my, or my socks, not my shoes. And I probably didn't need to, but I thought fresh socks would feel good. In hindsight, it probably wasn't the smartest idea. Cause when I pulled off my socks, all of my toe tape came off with them. So I then had to re-tape my toes, but I not brought my scissors to cut all of my toe tape and, um, so I went, actually, they had a podiatrist at the aid station there who offered to do it and had the supplies sort of ready and could do it more quickly than I could. So I taped up my toes. Also, I'd been starting to feel my knees swelling a little bit at this point, I guess, from all of the ups and downs. And so just to stabilize them, I'd had previous races where they'd gotten much bigger than this one. So I thought they're not bothering me that much yet. 
but I know that they have the potential to really bother me. And so if there's anything that the aid station people could do, um, I sort of asked, like, do you think it's worth taping them to stabilize them? And they said, absolutely. So God love them for taping me up at that point, touching my really dirty, smelly feet. Like they were amazing. They were so excited and so ready to help and so eager just to jump in and do what they could. Okay, so you leave Mount St. Anne and you climb the mountain. What's it like to climb the mountain? Slow. <laughs> I think this is the these two summits to get to the top were probably my slowest sections. It was just there was no running up that mountain. It was like straight up switchback trail for the first bit was through the woods for quite a bit. And there was a couple other just people out hiking it, I guess, that um, were going pretty strong and pretty fast. And I was moving a little bit slow, but I was moving and then you come out of the woods and it's just, you're looking up at the top and for, it was like the, the sweltering heat of the day. There was just open sky above you. And so I was really just doing what I could to motivate myself to keep going up. And at that point it was like any, any forward motion is good motion. And so, uh, I was doing that. And as soon as you come to the top, there's actually a nice like crest and a flat that was super runnable. So I made it into that aid station. The volunteers here were awesome. There was a guy blowing a conch shell that uh, I could hear from far away. So as I was coming up on it, he was blowing that. They were beating like a rain barrel as a drum. And so they were making a lot of noise and it was it was cool to come in. As soon as I was there, they started like making all the noise and, and, you know, they told me where to go. I was really hot. I was sort of afraid I was overheating at that point. So I went into that aid station and actually like sat down and took a bit of a rest. I was hoping that they had ice, but they didn't. So I uh, went to the bathroom and I splashed my face with water. I uh, had some watermelon. I sort of took my time. I knew that I had a bit of a lead here at this point too. And so it was okay to rest. One of the, the race directors or main volunteers actually saw me sitting and just very still, I think. And he came over and he said, Kelsey, are you going to keep going? Like, are you going to drop out? And I remember just feeling very confused by the question. Like, no, I'm, I'm great. I'm just taking a little rest so I can recoup and get going again. They send you out of that aid station. You kind of loop down and around and up through another trail and you come back to the same place. So I saw all those folks again. Um, and there's lots of other racers in and out at this point. So you get to sort of see how everyone's doing and say hello a little bit. And then was on my way to where I knew I would see my parents again. Yeah, and as I was leaving that, the summit aid station, the second time, the guy with the conch and the lady with the rain barrel, the two volunteers who had great energy, walked me up the, the, the exit with the sounds. So it was, it was a good burst. Great people all around. So then you run towards Auberge de Fondeur. What's that section of trail like? Really nice and runnable. Yeah, it was like, um, I guess it was 11 and a half kilometers to that section. It felt pretty short at that point too. Like after the climb up the summit, it felt really nice that it wasn't straight uphill. <laughs> and so I knew I was going to see my parents, which was always an extra burst. And it sort of was a blur. Like it just flew by. And coming into that too, I as soon as I got close, I could see someone standing sort of like outside of the road. You kind of came up like an access road to that point. Uh, and I could see someone at the edge and it was my mom and she, I guess, had known that I was coming in soon. And um, so I whooped, people were whooping, everyone was cheering and I 
came into that aid station feeling pretty excited too. What happened at that aid station? At that aid station, I ate mushroom risotto. <laughs> I was pretty excited about that. I had my parents make some some extra real food that I knew I would be wanting at that point in the race. So I had a nice bunch of spoonfuls of that, refilled my water like usual, grabbed more watermelon. Again, I don't know how much watermelon I ate at this race, but it was amazing. I usually ate a few slices at every aid station and then left with a few slices in my hands. I think I sat for a little bit at this one too. Like I probably sat longer than I needed to, but I was really enjoying being there. And I, there was a lot of people around. It was sort of a gathering point. I guess a lot of the races passed through that aid station. So um, it was it was pretty big and done up with a lot of folks around. Yeah, and then there's sort of two places to exit. One, you go to the finish and one you go and you do another 25K if you're running the 100 miles. So I went to that section when I left and uh, knew that I would probably not see my parents again until it started to get dark. And so I took off down that section. A lot of those were sort of access roads at that point too. There was, it followed a nice little creek at some points that was really pretty and it started to get dark just after I re- reached that, it was actually an aid station, just a little tiny tent, basically in the woods with two volunteers. One of the volunteers noticed my Gaspesia hat that I was wearing for another race, and he pointed it out and said, oh, bon chapeau. And I said, oh, say in bon course, a really good race, because <laughs> I'm, you know, always trying to speak French here, even though I don't know what I'm saying half the time. And uh, yeah, I, I really like that race a lot. So it was fun to have things like that with me on the run. I usually run with things like I have my my Newfoundland flag patch. I have shirts or hats from other races that give me good energy. I have an I2P, impossible to possible patch, a New Brunswick trail running patch. I have a rock from Newfoundland in my pack. I have a four leaf clover glass charm that you gave me in my pack. And so all those little things that are a nice burst of energy. And it's kind of fun when other people notice them sometimes too. Yeah, and then I looped around that section. It was dark at this point, um, so I turned on my headlamp again, swapped out my running cap for my uh, buff, and yeah, ate a couple of oranges and a bunch of watermelon at that aid station too, and then was ready to go back to Fondur. So you get back to Fondur, and you try to eat more risotto. (laughs) I do. Yeah, I was feeling so good. I felt awesome coming in. I guess when I left that Mont St. Hilaire aid station in the woods, I had four orange slices uh, and I hadn't had orange any, at any point during the race. And I wonder if the acidity didn't sit well or something, but um, like I was feeling really good. And I went to Fonder, I, you know, did all my usual aid station things, was getting ready to go, had a couple more spoonfuls of the mushroom risotto I'd eaten the second time around and then puked <laughs> all of it. It was just... None of it stayed down. And so I went, oh, boy, I guess I can't leave yet. (laughs) I was feeling kind of nauseous. Okay, I have to ask you about that. So for a lot of people, that would be super distressing. I think I actually looked at mom and dad and went, darn, that doesn't usually happen till the finish line. Like, I only had 10K left to go after this. And so I was ready to just keep going. And I didn't really let it get to me. I think I just knew it's kind of pretty normal. You're asking your body to do a lot. I'd been eating and drinking really well the whole time. And so I guess for that last 10K, I was really trying to like eat a little bit more so I would leave the aid station feeling good and with enough fuel to get to the finish line. And it didn't want to have that fuel. And so I just said, that's okay. I usually carry crystallized ginger and ginger chews with me. Uh, And one of my 
running fuel things that's not real food that I really love is Endurance Tap. Uh, and I guess it is real food. Real food. It's just like maple syrup and sea salt and ginger. And those I find no matter what's going on in my stomach go down pretty smoothly because of the ginger too. So I knew I had a few more of those and I could have them on the trail. So uh, I wasn't in danger of not having enough to get to the finish line. And so I just let myself sit and, and let the nausea pass a little bit, chewed on a piece of ginger and said, okay, ready to go. We're going to finish this, this, this thing off. Did you have any of the endurance tap in that section? I did. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I think probably just endurance tap and ginger. And I think I did actually bring a piece of watermelon with me to have there too. So I, I did eat a little bit in that last section. There's kind of a tendency when you're almost finished to think, oh, like I can just make it now. Like I don't need to eat anything else. But I know that that time actually takes a little bit longer than expected. And it's also nice to not finish on a totally empty stomach and, and feel completely depleted. So I try and make an effort at that point in particular to really eat a little bit extra. What's that section like? Ah, uh, so fun. It was dark at this point. The fun bit about this section is that they had kilometer markers. So I left the aid station and I guess it's maybe 800 meters till you're back on the trail. And right at that entrance is a nine kilometer mark. And so I realized it was kind of a surprise that I would get a countdown towards the trail, towards the finish. And I, I was flying. Like I felt like I was flying. It was probably moving slower than I had at the beginning, but I felt strong. I felt excited about moving to the finish. I Felt bad. I actually think I passed a couple of the other 100 mile runners in this section that were moving a bit slower than I was. And it doesn't ever feel right to pass people at the end of a 100 mile race when you're only a few kilometers to the finish. But everyone is in pretty good spirits. And at this point, when you see each other, it's like, ah, oh, have a great race. Like, we'll see you at the finish. Like, good job. We're almost there. That was that was my feeling for a lot of it. And it was really fun, twisty, windy single track that was really runnable, which is some of my favorite stuff. I knew that just near the finish, there would be two creek crossings and the whole time you're like sort of going towards the creek and then away from it. And it's like twisty fun and I could hear the creek and every time I thought, oh, I'm, am I going to cross it this time? Like, is this the moment? But then you kind of twist away and go back and uh, then those two creek crossings happen sort of back to back and they had a nice rope and it was really well marked so that you could get across pretty easily. And then once you do that second creek crossing, you're just like a kilometer to the finish. And so I could hear it. Uh, I came up that same sort of section that I did uh, when I was heading back to Mont Saint Anne. You come out and around and you can see the ski resort. You come up on this road and then you tuck into the woods and then you come out around and you're up sort of above where the base of the mountain is and where the finish is. And I came in there and one of the volunteers from the race was waiting for me. I'd seen him at a few other points and he met me and sort of ran alongside me for a second and said, Kelsey, you're doing great. Like you're, you're going to finish this thing. He said, I'm going to meet you at the finish now. I'm going to let everyone know you're coming in. And so he ran ahead and I guess they, I guess there was someone who'd finished sort of in between that. They'd put the ribbon up and were waiting for me and some, another uh, male runner from the hundred miler finished. And so they had to take it down and then put it back up again because they knew I was coming in and I could hear the cheering and the announcer and I could see all of the lights flashing and it was just this like wild, wild energy coming in. Okay. Now, before we get to the finish line, you didn't cry when you crossed the finish line. <laughs> Did you cry before the finish line? 
I may have inside information on this. I often cry at the finish line, I think. And so it was in a lot of the photos, you see me smiling and beaming. And that's that is how I crossed the finish line. I was so pumped. And the tears had come earlier in that in that 10K nine and a half kilometer section as I was picturing finishing and and picturing seeing my parents and just like realizing that I was gonna get there there were tears they were like very happy tears and celebratory tears but all of the emotions came out and I was as I was by myself finishing this thing off and running through the journey in my head and so at that point I guess it had like all been off gassed and I was just ready to run it in Yes, we're very tear positive over here. So (laughs) (laughs) we always like to save a little space to talk about the tears. And I think in a race like this, you are just like right next to your emotions. Like there's no, no filter, whatever you're feeling is just present. And it's nice to embrace whatever that is. All right. Finish line. Yeah, I, I ran, I ran it in. I was fast. I felt strong. I could see my parents at the other side I could see all these cameras at the other side actually there was a lot of cameras and lights I crossed the finish line and I kind of didn't know what to do with the ribbon I I was surprised that it was still there and that and and uh, there was a couple of volunteers who wrapped me in it and it felt like I was getting a warm hug from a blanket they they asked me some questions I think I said some really I said some things to the race director about how great the race was how incredible the volunteers were how awesome and beautiful it all was I think I was speaking half in French half in English Uh, and then a lady with a microphone who I guess was doing some of the finish line interviews came like had been listening and said okay I'm gonna hold up a mic and I want you to say all of that again and I thought I don't know what I just said (laughs) so I think I said some of the similar things again and then my parents could come in and I, they handed me a, a belt buckle actually before that. So they had customized belt buckles for finishing this one. Had my name on the back. Most 100 milers, a belt buckle is the thing that you get when you cross the finish line. And I had beer glasses and a nice cold beer there too. And so I hugged my parents. I hugged the race director. And then all of a sudden I hugged you. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't been expecting to see you because this is a key thing that I had left out of one of the earlier, the auberge aid station is I asked how you were doing because I knew that you were going to be at this point in the race climbing the mountain with your dad and my dad had said yeah Adam's with Bruce now and I I thought okay that's great so they're out there they're taking their time they're up the mountain and then I come across the finish line and you were there (laughs) and I guess we can we'll talk about your race at some point but you had stopped your race and so you were there to see me finish which ended up being really lovely and you hugged me and told me that there was a reason why you'd stopped and all was okay and it was nice to see me and so it was nice to see you too yes and so then there's the fanfare the finish and um then what do you do right after one of these things um you should put on warm clothes right away and try and eat i went and i sat down and i think my my mom and dad were asking me what I needed and I didn't really know what the answer was, but um, some food was part of the answer. And so they went and got me some more food from one of the or from the finish finishers dinner that they'd been holding on. And we were sitting at a picnic table right in front of the paramedic tent. And I tried to drink some of the nice Thai broth that looked really exciting and I just couldn't keep it down. And right in front of the paramedic, I puked all of that back up. And there she was looking at me like, are you OK? 
And I was trying to tell her like, no, I'm, it's fine. This is normal. She, she had a garbage can actually that I managed to get. So I might jump in here and say, she was looking at you saying, you just ran a hundred miles. You're definitely not okay. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But she seemed not all that concerned about what was going on. So I had a thought of like, don't, I don't need to go into that van right now. Like I feel totally fine, albeit weird, but like a normal level of weird for having run this. Yeah. And it, it was a cool feeling. At, just after I crossed too, there were three guys that came in together that had run a big section of it. And I'd known Matthew before and seen him at a few other races. So it was cool that he was one of the next ones across the finish line and I could give them all high fives. And we didn't stick around too long because it was probably at that point a good idea to get home and get changed and get some sleep. Well, that's the race recap. All in all, it was a really cool race. Really very well organized, incredible people behind it from the volunteers to the aid stations, to the medics, to the race organizers. Every detail was really well thought out and it was really fun. I had a lot of fun. Mostly the the like real fun kind of fun. And how long did it take you? 28 hours, 18 minutes and 49 seconds. 28, 18, 49. (laughs) 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 All right. And before we go, I have to ask you one last question. Okay. You just ran a hundred miles. You just won a race. You had so much fun. Why do you run ultras? Hmm. I love the feeling of being out there connected to the places that I'm running in. And uh, I think I feel even more connected with myself. It's, It's pretty spiritual in a lot of ways. I feel like my thoughts and feelings are so present that I just get to experience it all right there and and process it all while I'm out there. I love the community of people. I love getting to push to new limits and realizing that my body and mind are capable of so much more than I would ever have imagined. I love getting to see so many different trails and getting to discover places on foot that I wouldn't get to see if I wasn't moving through them quite at the speeds that I would I was I'm running when I'm doing these things. And I feel pretty grateful to be able to do all of that. I know it's a bit of a privilege to be able to spend 28 hours, 18 minutes and 49 seconds running and to bring some people along for the ride. And so I feel very grateful when I do these things for all of the people that are part of it, all of the trail community that get me there, all of the people back home who are cheering me along and and sending messages. And I guess I hope that part of doing these things maybe inspires someone else too to think of like, what is their ultra? Like, what is the thing that they love to do that is maybe something that they wouldn't believe is possible that feels exciting and scary? And maybe not everyone wants to run 100 miles, but what is the thing that it is for you? And I hope that by going out there and doing these things fully that maybe other people realize that they can too. There. Kelsey, thank you for living in the same house as me. (laughs) And thank you for doing this interview having this conversation i'm really privileged to get to be part of all of this and to learn from how you run these things and i think that other people will take a lot of joy maybe roll their eyes but mostly feel pretty lucky to have been able to listen to you talk about this race so thanks very much 
Mm, well, thanks for joining me for them, for the races and the conversations in between and after. Thanks for listening to Trail Emotion. If you want to keep up with what happens on this podcast, make sure to click follow on your podcatcher of choice. And in time, there will be more episodes. We promise. You can also follow along on Instagram at at Kelsey Pamela, K-E-L-S-E-Y, or at Adam Fernell, F-E-A-R-N-A-L-L. All right. Happy trails. Happy life. Talk to you later.